Hello everyone. I'd first like to start by acknowledging the traditional owners of this land where we are today and the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation and pay my respects to the elders, past, present and future, and particularly thank my elders from far north Queensland for the privileges I have today and for the reasons that we can do what we can do today. I'd also like to acknowledge all the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Island people who might be with us tonight and um, thank them for joining us on our journey. I'm here on behalf of Professor Shane Houston, who's our Deputy Vice-Chancellor, Indigenous Strategy and Services within the University of Sydney. For those of you who don't know me, and I do know a few faces around the room, my name's Hayleen Grogan. I'm the Director of Operational Reform within the DVC, Indigenous Strategy and Services, office with Shane. And I'm absolutely delighted to um, play the role of uh, introductions to you all and to be speaking on behalf of Professor Houston. It's my absolute pri privilege to welcome you to joining our journey. And look, it's, the exciting thing is that the University of Sydney is, um, has started an agenda around leadership and believes that the power of leadership can make lives better. The University of Sydney is leading a number of conversations around leadership and tonight's one of them. But tonight's is in the context of cultural competence. Cultural competence is becoming more and more important across our global community. The values and understandings of cultural competence, the policy, structures, practices to sustain it into a new geographic, academic and sectoral domains is happening as we speak. Tonight, we have brought together leaders in cultural competence to discuss innovation at the cutting edge to achieve systemic change through leadership. We are very privileged to have Professor Tawara Good joining our, joining our journey with her experiences of establishing perhaps the world's first cultural centre of thought. And we're also very privileged to have the world's first, uh, sorry, to have um, our Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander Social Justice Commissioner, Mick Gooder, assisting us tonight. And I'd like to introduce Mick Gooder. I was supposed to have my bit of paper that reads out what you, <laughs> your achievements, Mick. Mick is uh, also, I'm just going to speak off the cuff then. Mick Gooder, we're very proud to say, is our a co-Queenslander and um, has been Australia's Aboriginal Social Justice Commission for the past five years and has just handed down his last report. And um, we're absolutely honoured because I didn't give Mick a lot of time to actually accept the invite to play a role tonight. And I feel especially um, honoured that you actually accepted um, because the work that Mick's been leading for the past five years and before that actually, before he even took on the role of Social Justice Commissioner, has been incredibly important in this space. And while there are a number of us across this country leading in this work, we're really proud that University of Sydney is taking such a lead role in what we're trying to do here. And we're really proud, Mick, that you're able to join us and play the role you're playing tonight. So I'll use that as my introduction, and I'm really thankful that you are here, and I'd hope that you might um, add to my introduction in terms of what you've done. Thank you, Mick. Um, thank you, Hylene. Can I um, acknowledge we we're on the lands of the Gadigal people of the Eora Nation. I pay my, my I pay, uh, I honour those elders who've come before us, elders here today, and those that are yet to come. Uh, my people are the Gungaloo people in central Queensland. Um, people know Warabinda, a big mission in, in central Queensland. That's my country. 
Um, I'm honoured to have other people come to our country as it is in every part of Australia when people got moved. Um, my grandfather walked from Taroom, which was about 250 kilometres away from Warrabinda in 1927 to establish Warrabinda and found my grandmother, my great-grandmother still living on country, a, a property called Old Waruna Station, which is now Warrabinda. Um, and because we have matriarchal lineage in our mob, I've, only, I've been lucky that I have to go back about three generations to find my grandmother um, still living on country. So uh, on behalf of my elders, can I pay my tribute to the local people for their continued fight for their culture in their country? Um, I think Harleen was referring to my role in the, as the um, uh, CEO of the Cooperative Research Centre for Aboriginal Health. I started in two, late 2004 and finished in late 2009. And one of the things I was really proud of there was we actually, along with Ian, Dr Ian Anderson, now Professor Ian Anderson, one of our first Indigenous doctors, and, and Pat Anderson, one of our heroes in the movement for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander rights, uh, led, a, led a process that put Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in the middle of setting the research agenda. We actually ended up with a, a, a community-led research agenda rather than a researcher-led research agenda, which was actually really important. And we actually started leading the way about making our mob front and centre. And I remember the first six months, after the first six months I started, we held our um, first gathering while I was there. And we actually, the three of us got up and basically said to researchers, if you're not prepared to work on a research agenda set by the community, if you're not prepared to work on projects where Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people will be intimately involved and will probably be leading those projects, and you've got to be understanding that some of these people who will be leading the projects probably don't have those pieces of paper from the university, and if you're not prepared to do that, this isn't the place for you. And we were very certain about that, and we were lucky because we had our own money so we could do that. And, and at the end of the time, about three years into this, a couple of researchers left us at that point and we thought, well, that's pretty good. You know, they're upfront about it, but they came back because by this stage, we'd done some research on researchers. <laughs> and, and to be quite honest, uh, Aboriginal health research can be a very career limiting move if you move in there because uh, we, we had to write lots of references for people applying for f extensions to their fellowship because they, they gave up a lot of international work to keep working in the Indigenous space here in Australia. So the reason they came to us was because they wanted to make a difference. And all of a sudden, because we had this research agenda developed with the community on projects led by the community, um, with, with the, alongside the world's best researchers, um, we were making changes, you know? Um, a small project that cost us about $30,000 studying the burden of disease, uh, where we found smoking was probably the, the well, it wasn't probably, the, the biggest inter single intervention we can make to close the gap. It actually accounted for 17% of the health gap. Um, 
We took that $30,000 project, we promoted it to government. Within 12 months, there's a $100 million program on quit smoking. My predecessor, Tom Kalmer, it's sort of almost, you know, there's some, some congruency there. He left this job, I come in, and he's now running the smoking program. So we actually produce research that works, and I think that was really around how do we actually treat cultural competence. And we actually, we had three criteria for our research projects. One had to be robust research, so we wanted the best researchers with us. Two, our research had to create change. We, we weren't interested in doing research to produce papers and hold seminars. We actually wanted to know what difference will this research make to a child coming into a clinic somewhere covered in in sores. It's nice to write a biomedical paper and do it, but we want to know what the difference is to that kid and those families. And the third thing we wanted to do was build capacity. And we, 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 we described capacity building as going to an event and coming away with some skill or ability or understanding that you didn't have when you walked in. And for some of our people, that was a PhD. People like Gilbert A. Gallagher and, and Yin Paradis. Others, it was a conference. Others, it was a round table that they attended. They all got something out of it. And we were really keen on making sure we built the capacity of non-Indigenous people wanting to work in the Indigenous space. We, we were very deliberate about that because we wanted the best researchers. But we wanted them to understand how, how, our way of doing it. So I think we did OK. It's now morphed into the Lowerture Institute. Um, I, I think, Russ, you're on the board of the Lowerture Institute. Uh, I think it's a great um, springboard. But it was also really about, I think, in the heart of it, cultural competence. And can I just give you an aside? We talked about capacity building and, and recognising our mob for what they know, and we, we invoke what I call the Tenzing principle. And it was that Tenzing Norgay wasn't just a Sherpa. He was a mountaineer. It wasn't just Sedman Hillary was the first person on the top of Mount Everest. He was accompanied by Tenzing Norgay. And in the same way, our people, because they don't have that piece of paper, are researchers. They're not research assistants or research officers. They're researchers, and we paid... Um, we gave them the honour of being named that in our, in our papers. I went to the CSIRO and you know how they are about research names and, and I suggested that they might want to consider pulling names out of the hat to work out what order they put it on on the research paper and they just about died. <laughs> it was something foreign to them but we, we didn't have any problem doing that in, in the CRC and I think that's a part of respecting the work that our people do because they certainly contributed to producing that robust research. But tonight we're going to have a have a great night. We're going to listen to some really expert people. And the first person we're going to listen to is Professor Tawara Good. Now, it seems strange, Professor Good, Mick Gooder. And I said to Tawara earlier, what's, what's a vowel between friends, you know? So you've got Good and Gooder. It, it can only get better. <laughs> so if I may just call you Tawara, is that fine, is an assistant professor in the Department of Paediatrics, Georgetown University Medical Centre in Washington, D.C. 
She's also director of the National Centre for Cultural Competence at Georgetown University Centre for Child and Human Development, having led the centre for 17 of its 19 years of existence. Tawara is a distinguished thought leader in the area of cultural and linguistic competency and has built the Georgetown National Centre for Cultural Competence into an internationally recognised and award-winning program. She played a primary role in developing, the, developing curricular assessment instruments, professional development series and other resources that support cultural and linguistic competence across the United States and across the world. She's also a partner in this enterprise at the University of Sydney and is sharing her expertise and experience with the National Centre for Cultural Competence here as much as she can. Can you please welcome Tawara? Good evening, everyone. How are you? Oh, I'll, I'll try again. <laughs> Good evening, everyone. How are you? Okay, that's, that's, that's a lot better. Um, I want to thank so many people for the opportunity to be here this, this evening, um, particularly Sheen, who's, um, who's not here, who's out doing good work, and all of his colleagues. It's a distinct pleasure and honor. So I have just a few minutes to share some thoughts with you today around um, our theme, which is leadership for cultural competence and innovations at the cutting edge to achieve change. So I spent a lot of time thinking about what I was gonna say today. I did that stateside of the US and then really didn't compile everything until I got here in last, late last night. And I thought that my presentation would really focus on cultural competence. What is it? What does it look like within an academic setting? It would look at innovations. And what does innovation mean, particularly in the context of cultural competence, again, within an academic setting? And then lastly, leadership. So what does it take to lead cultural competence in such an environment? And I'm going to try and do this all in 25 minutes or less. So I want to share with you a framework for thinking about cultural competence. Some of the faculty who I've been with for the last two days, this may seem very familiar. This is a framework that was developed in 1989 by Terry Cross, Barbara Bajeron, Carl Dennis, and Marisa Isaacs um, that were actually consultants at Georgetown University. And this framework really was created around child and adolescent mental health. There are groups of people across the country that felt that children of color, in particular in the United States, weren't getting services that were addressing their cultural needs and their linguistic needs. And so uh, a group of folks, Terry Cross, because it's the Cross definition, who happens to be American Indian, um, has done some exciting work in the United States, were challenged to come up with a conceptual framework in terms of addressing culture and service delivery. Since that time, this framework has been, I would say, universally applicable across multiple systems, um, whether it's health, whether it's behavioral health, social services, education. Some of the work that we've done in research um, from the Commonwealth Fund has looked at this particular framework for thinking about cultural competence. And again, I think it's not by coincidence. I do think that it's, its principles, its values, and how it's structured can indeed be applied in many situations. 
So we're gonna define cultural competence as first of all having specific values. So this is a very values-driven uh, framework. And also principles that really would need to be able to underlie um, this overall. And it basically says that organizations, academic institutions, any organization has to have in place policies, structures, practices, procedures. You would see behaviors and attitudes that will enable those individuals within those organizations and or academic institutions to work effectively cross-culturally. And so it does say cross-culturally, doesn't say cross-ethnically, doesn't say cross-racially, it says cross-culturally, because we're looking at culture in its depth and complexity. As we think about cultural competence at an individual level, there are five elements. One of the first elements is to, to acknowledge cultural differences. Oftentimes people feel awkward about this. Um, they think it's like, is it being politically correct? That they feel really uncomfortable about acknowledging cultural differences. Well, we know that we're all cultural beings. That's what human beings are. And that we are different. And our cultures make us different. And so being able to do that is essential in cultural competence. Being able to understand your own culture, you really have difficulty talking about the cultures of others when you don't first understand your own culture. And that would be not just a culture from your, or your, your family of origin, but looking at culture within the context of the particular discipline in which you're trained. The, the faculty, the department, the school in which you may work. Looking at it within the context of whether or not you're in health, whether or not you may be in social services. But really understanding, again, understanding your own culture from that lens. A third element is being able to engage in self-assessment. This is a key and critical area of cultural competence. And that's being able to look at what your strengths are in terms of addressing culture in whatever field or discipline you may be in, and what are your areas for growth. And there are many tools and processes and instruments to help you along the way. The fourth is being able to acquire cultural knowledge and skills. And what this says is that Acquiring cultural knowledge and skills is intentional. It just doesn't happen by happenstance. It's not by osmosis. That one has to have an intentional focus on acquiring areas of knowledge about groups that may be different than yourself, and also skills in terms of whether that's the conduct of research, whether that's community engagement. And then lastly, being able to view behavior within a cultural context. Because no matter how strange a behavior may be, there's some reason for that behavior, and it usually rests within a cultural context. So this is the way we think about cultural competence at an individual level, and let's see what does this look like in higher education. We like to see that faculty, staff, and others, including students, demonstrate a genuine interest in this area. And when I say genuine interest, I mean genuine as in really interested, as opposed to it's the theme of the week. Being able to admit and identify areas for professional growth. Sometimes this is really hard in academia because we're at the top of our game. You know, we're PhDs, we are experts. And then to be able to have the humility to say, this is an area I don't know much about, you know, takes, takes a little gumption. 
And so I think, again, this is very key and critical because we know that cultural competence is a new and emerging field. We have to have the willingness and skills to address the dynamics of difference. And again, looking around this room, there's a great degree of difference, whether that's by age or ethnicity or uh, national origin or discipline, sexual orientation, gender identity, there's a great degree of diversity. And having the willingness to be able to do that within the context of an academic setting is key and critical. Seeking knowledge, really understanding and, and going about finding out of, about cultural groups and what it means to belong to a particular cultural group, um, particularly within the academic setting and in the communities that you serve and support. Then lastly, when we think about this at an individual level, it is the capacity of folks in, in academia to be able to embed cultural competence, and we often say cultural and linguistic competence, into how you teach and how you supervise, into curricula, into instructional technology, and mentoring. And we've done a lot of work on mentoring students from underrepresented groups counseling and related services and research, and we heard an excellent example of that from the work that you've been doing, and also in community engagement. And this is just at a minimum. So it's not just about cultural competence in terms of how I may interact with Jaime, um, how I may interact with a student. It's looking at systematically embedding these things across the university. And so as we think about cultural competence, again, from the cross framework, we can look at this at an organizational level. And again, there are five elements. First is to be able to value diversity. I won't speak about the University of Sydney. I'll just speak about a generic university in Washington, DC. There are many organizations and universities that say we value diversity. It's in their mission statement. Um, you may see it in their brochures. You may see it on the website. But when you really look at the makeup of that organization from hierarchy across the board, that diversity is not necessarily represented. And so as we think about cultural competent organizations, it is looking at not just saying that we value the diversity, but it is present in who works there, who we partner with, who we contract with, um, and, and who are the students that indeed attend the university across the board. Being able to conduct self-assessment is another key aspect of cultural competence. And this is looking at assessment at an organizational level. Because a lot of our work has been in health and, and human services um, and education. We've had the privilege of being able to create a number of organizational self-assessment instruments and tools, including one that we recently validated specifically for health practitioners. But being able to look at the organization and say, what are our strengths in terms of addressing culture within the context of higher education? And not what are our weaknesses or deficits, because people really don't like hearing that they have deficits or weaknesses in cultural competence. I'm going to repeat that. People do not like it. They get um, um, turned off um, and have a hard time with it. And so we have to be very conscious of how we use language. And so. And our work in terms of conducting self-assessment, we talk about areas of strength, 
And then we talk about areas for growth because we all can grow and it's much more palatable, much more acceptable if we speak about it from that perspective. So being able to do that. Managing the dynamics of difference and that's key and critical when you look at whether it's human resources, whether it's students, whether it's engaging communities. Being able to truly manage those dynamics of difference through a cultural context is a key aspect of cultural competence. Institutionalizing cultural knowledge, that really speaks to, oftentimes there may be, uh, I'll just give an example, someone in an organization that has a particular area of expertise, say it's for a particular cultural group, and everybody in the organization may go to that person and say, can you help out with this? Can you tell us more about that? And what do those, those people really think about and how do they really do this? And people do that a lot because that person has been the identified expert. Suppose that person leaves wonderful Sydney and decides to, to move to the United States but someplace warm, you know, like California or something, not Washington, D.C. What happens when that occurs? All of that knowledge and experience walks right out the door with that individual because there's nothing been put in place within the organization that would look at structurally how it should remain. So as we think about cultural competence, it has to be institutionalized. Now, maybe that person left and, I don't know, seven people within that particular setting wouldn't exactly have that expertise, but they should have known context. They need to know what's the research going on. So that it doesn't get to be one person's responsibility as it relates to cultural competence. And lastly, culturally competent organizations are able to adapt to diversity. That means they revisit their policies, they revisit their procedures, they revisit their structures in the face of diversity. Now that's from the framework from 1989, across it all. But let's look at what this means within an academic setting. We have to ensure that cultural competence is integral to the core mission of the university. It cannot be perceived as an add-on. It is about the work of the university. There has to be committed leadership, and I want you to think about this, particularly within the context of the University of Sydney. It has to be supported by organizational policy, structures, procedures, and practices. I'm gonna repeat that. It's not so much, again, just a practice or curricular adaptation. It's what's there structurally within the policy of an organization so it is able to be sustained over time. There has to be dedicated resources. Many of these things we clearly are seeing at the University of Sydney. There's faculty and staff buy-in. So it can't just be that one group's interested in it. It has to be across the university setting overall. There needs to be recognition and incentives for scholarly excellence because this is a discipline, this is a field, and there's a solid body of evidence. There's a clear evidence base, and people have to be familiar with that and be able to articulate that and understand it. And then again, the partnerships that you share within communities in a variety of sectors. So this is how we think about cultural competence. As we talked about those five levels of cultural competence, they have to be within every aspect of an organization or academic setting. 
has to be at the policymaking level, has to be at the administrative level, have to be within the core functions of academia, at the primary consumer level, that could be students or others, and lastly, it has to be at the community level. And I suggest to you that you're not really a culturally competent entity unless you're addressing all of these. It's hard to be a culturally competent researcher at a university that doesn't support me with policies, procedures, and resources. So really want us to think about cultural competence from this framework. Um, at least this is a framework I want to share with you. There are other ways to think about it, but this is what drives our work. Now, let's talk a little bit about innovation. And as I was up last night, couldn't really, like, really get to sleep. It's like reading a lot of different things on, on, on the internet. And I thought, I'm gonna look at innovation and I'm gonna see what the business community says about innovation and pull some things out. Because you know, it's an academic institution, but you are a business enterprise. Um, and so it's something for us to take into consideration. And so I looked at um, a particular site that had business leaders talking about innovation. And I wanna share some of those with you. The innovation is creating new value and or capturing value in a new way. And I like for you to think about what does this mean within the context of cultural competence in this university setting. The innovation is the actions required to create new ideas, processes or products, when which implemented lead to positive and effective change. What does that mean within the context of University of Sydney? And what in invention requires to creation of new ideas, processes, or products, innovation moves one step further and requires implementation of the inventive act. So that we can talk about cultural competence, we can look at what the values are, but the hard work is making sure it is implemented systematically throughout the university. Some more thoughts. Innovation is an idea that has been transformed into practical reality. So what that says to me is that we have to move from theory about cultural competence into what does it mean within every position description? What does it mean, again, within the conduct of research? What does it mean within the conduct of community engagement? So making it very practical and real in the lives of people within this university setting. And lastly, true innovation is far more than an extension of what is done normally. And I, this one rang a particular bell with me in terms of our work to promote cultural and linguistic competence in a variety of settings. Some people want to do exactly what they always do and tweak something a little bit. That's not cultural competence. It is not about tweaking. It is about systemic change. And that is the approach that we need to think about this overall. So I spent some time looking at synonyms renovation. And I want you to think about this, particularly in the work that's happening here at University of Sydney. So change, change, change. We saw this a lot. Revolution. This is a revolution in a way. Upheaval. It can make people feel as if it's a big upheaval because we're talking about doing things differently. It can make some people uncomfortable. It's about transformation. It's about metamorphosis a breakthrough and is new, new, and new. And that's about new ideas, new methods, 
new ways of thinking, and new ways of doing. This is all about cultural competence. And so as we think about cultural competence and we think about innovations, I'm going to offer you at least one organizational change framework, which is entitled Diffusion of Innovations. So if we're thinking about cultural competence and how do we get that out within the context of the university and the surrounding communities, people first have to know about it. If there's some knowledge of it, what does it mean? And what does it mean within the context of my particular disciplines, the students that I work with, et cetera? Then there has to be some persuading going on to really look at how are we communicating about this innovation to others. Then folks have to decide, well, will it work for me? Is it going to be meaningful? It's going to add value to the work I do here at the University of Sydney. And then one has to adopt it, to actually put it into practice within your setting. And then lastly, we have to look at sustaining. And I share this with you, as I shared earlier with a number of different faculty members. We looked at many organizational change frameworks. This is just one of them. But this is specifically looking at how do you diffuse an innovation? And how do you do it systemically and consistently over time? Now I'm going to talk a little bit about leadership, because these were all the things in that title, leadership and cultural competence and, and, and innovation. I want to share with you a framework for thinking about leadership. And we had very interesting discussions about this, about people's notion of what is a leader. So as we think about leadership, it's a set of personal attributes, qualities, and skills, either intuitive or acquired. That part's really important, intuitive as in kind of came here with it, or that it's deliberate and it's acquired, meaning that you worked on it. And most importantly, it's about not bossing people around and telling people what to do. It's about arousing and motivating others toward change. And that's what we need to do as it relates to cultural competence. So as we think about leadership as visionary, it occurs in groups, and I've been seeing lots of groups around the university that are working on this. It uses influence. It addresses power, is goal-oriented. It initiates processes and keeps them in motion, and is different from management. Very different from management and different from authority. I'm going to go back to this slide one more time. As we think about leading and leading these efforts, Sometimes people lead by position, but then also one can lead by influence. And I encourage you to think about your spheres of influence in this area, who you can influence, how you can influence them, and in what context. So last night I was looking for images of leadership. And there's a truckload of images for leadership on the, on the, on the websites. I mean, it's like a truckload. But they didn't always just appeal to what we're talking about today. And so as I thought about leadership in the way that we're framing it, it's empowering people, it's inspiring people, it's leading change, and it's a shared vision. And these are things that we've talked about. So then I thought, well, what could be a more appropriate image than Shane? He is the epitome of a leader. I am just in awe 
that several years ago, maybe it was three, but maybe not, Shane visited us at Georgetown University and said, I want to do a National Center for Cultural Competence. I was like, okay. He's like, I want to talk to you about what you guys did. I'm like, okay. And we stayed in contact. And he did it in a short amount of time. And when I say that, I don't mean all of the pieces, but he has taken a vision and is creating a reality. That is the epitome of a leader. He'd probably be embarrassed if he was here to hear that. And I also want to commend the University of Sydney. I've been doing this work for close to 20 years. University of Sydney, under Shane's leadership, is the first university, I think, on earth. My husband said that I have a tendency to exaggerate on occasion. <laughs> on occasion, but not this one that when we look at the University of Sydney, this is the first university of which I'm aware, again, that is looking at cultural competence not in one discipline, not in a program, not in a school, but university-wide. That is huge for innovation. There's like nobody else doing this. That we may see it in medical schools, we may see it in certain parts of school of social work, we do not see this across a university with the goal to say that every University of Sydney graduate will have some core competency in this area when they matriculate. That is innovation, 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 which deserves to be written about, needs to be documented, needs to be the process that you're going through documented and placed in the jury literature. This is a big deal. This is like a really, really big deal. Huge. That might be, no, no, it's not exaggerated. It's huge, it is a big deal. And so as we think about leaders that are advancing cultural competence, and you'll hear me say cultural and linguistic competence because that's the way it's phrased in the United States, let's think about who those leaders are. They're change agents. Think about yourself and what role you can play in this process. They gain credibility and authority by aligning themselves with the values and principles of cultural competence. What are those values and principles within the context of the University of Sydney? And are you aligned with them? They facilitate learning that enables both themselves and others to support change because it is about change and it's hard to promote change. They use power and alignment with the values and principles of cultural and linguistic competence. We know that these leaders inspire and motivate engagement. Again, an excellent example of engaging with indigenous Torres Strait Islander community in the conduct of research. They take risk to identify the structures and processes that need change. So in other words, they're critiquing stuff that needs to be critiqued. They can address and facilitate conflict resolution they persevere, they serve as coaches, teachers, and mentors, and importantly, and I, I have to say, I'm um, a little negligent on this end, they take time for self-care, because doing this work is hard, and you encounter um, unpleasant situations and stereotypes and biases. It takes a lot of emotional energy to deal with that. So self-care is very important. And also, they plan for succession, because 
folk aren't going to be around forever and ever. And it's done in a very deliberate way. So I know this is a very short amount of time to really talk about leadership and cultural competence innovation. But I would be remiss if I didn't talk about the elephant in the room. And so if we're going to do the work of cultural competence, we have to deal with the isms. And a lot of people don't even like to articulate the isms, let alone actually deal with them. So we're not doing the work of cultural competence at all unless we're addressing bias and stereotypes and discrimination and marginalization of populations, disparities, inequities, and power differentials. That is part of the work of cultural competence. It is critical to the work of cultural competence. And lastly, I want to leave you with these thoughts that essential attributes of an effective leader are the capacity and the humility to both lead and follow, lead and follow, and the insight to discern when either is most appropriate given a situation of context. So it's not just about, quote, leading. It is about following, because sometimes we may not have the knowledge, we may not have the expertise, and we need to be following folk. So um, those are my, those are my, con like my comments for tonight to help think about cultural competence in the context of this university and the amazing things um, that the university has been embarking on under the leadership of Sheen and others within this setting. So I thank you. Um, we'll move to the next part of tonight's presentation, and that's the panel. Can I ask the panel to move up? As we're walking up, uh, they're getting up, they'll talk about who they are. Russell Taylor is the principal of the Australian Institute of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander Studies, a position he has held since 2009. He's a Camilleroy man with family connections to La Perouse in Sydney and traditional country in the New England area of New South Wales. Russell's career spans, Russell's career spans uh, decades in senior executive positions in the public service and foundation, foundational roles in the non-for-profit sector. Then there's Dr. Jaime Gongora. He's a sub-dean of Indigenous Strategy Faculty of Veterinary Science at the University of Sydney. His area of research interests are wildlife and animal genetics and and genomics with relevance for animal conservation and management and evolutionary biology. He's published nearly 40 peer-reviewed scientific papers, has more than 24 years of teaching experience, including 14 years at the Faculty of Veterinary Science at the University of Sydney, during which time he has initiated novel teaching approaches, including in research-led and teaching research-led learning and teaching. The last panel member is Vanessa Lee. Vanessa is a senior lecturer at the Faculty of Health Sciences, University of Sydney. She's a descendant of the Wick and Miriam nations and has led the integration of indigenous content into the health science curriculum. 
Nationally, Vanessa advocates for Indigenous peoples as the first Vice President, Indigenous Health of the National Public Health Association of Australia. Can you please make the panel welcome? Now, I'm going to totally embarrass Vanessa because when I saw her earlier today, she apologised for not coming to the launch of my report last Friday. And I was getting a bit cranky because I felt let down in our mob. Um, but then she told me she was actually in the process of submitting her PhD thesis. So very soon we're going to have another doctor on our hands. So can you please congratulate <laughs> Vanessa for getting uh, That's a fairly good place to start, Vanessa. Tell us a couple of minutes about, in a couple of minutes about your thoughts on cultural competence. Um, thanks for that, Mick. Um, my thoughts on cultural competence is, I think cultural competence is a, it, it's an ongoing journey. Nobody is born culturally competent. It's something we learn and we grow and, and we learn to understand as we, as we get through life. Um, for me, it was, you know, I come from the Torres Strait. I was raised by my grandmother. And so it was about understanding that where Torres Strait Islanders and Aboriginal people fit in the, the wider Australian community and and then taking that on board and, and understanding um, where it fits where we fit um, globally and then coming back nationally and understanding how I can actually take that on board and and help my own people and help those around around me that work with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people to understand their own culture and take that on board and move in the steps towards being able to take their understanding and further help other clients, students, um, other people to understand who they are and grow, and, and grow culturally in themselves and empower who they are. Um, sure, I can keep going. Jaime, <laughs> <laughs> talk, talk to us about cultural competence in your area, veterinary science. Because I came and talked to your students earlier this year, didn't I? Yes, yes. You were one of the guest speakers uh, in one of the indigenous seminar series that we organize in the Faculty of Veterinary Science. Uh, the, the first thing that I would like to point out is that there are a lot of resources from health sciences that are very important for vet science. But in vet science, there is a particular situation there when we are talking about cultural competence. Because we have the professionals here, we have the clients here, the owners of the pets, and we have the animals. And also we have the perceptions of animals there. And when we have all these factors, we need to develop specific cases, specific approaches to uh, engage students and staff in cultural competence. So we have been developing possibly 20 initiatives in, la in the last three years in the Faculty of Veterinary Science, and I have been leading those initiatives. And I feel very passionate about those initiatives. And that goes from curriculum reviews to embed cultural competence, support indigenous students, uh, train uh, uh, non-indigenous staff to understand more about other cultures, not only about indigenous cultures, but other cultures. We have, uh, for example, how uh, uh, approaches to, uh, to support the faculty indigenous students as well. 
where we have a leadership residential for two days, where we engage indigenous students in learning more about leadership skills. So I can continue talking for about the 20 initiatives, yeah. but we are doing specific things for vet science. Uh, can I, um, uh, you mightn't think this is really important, but I, I got engaged with the, the vets working in remote Australia, going to our communities, and, and particularly looking after the dog population. And it was really important, like, um, people thought they were just going to go into a community and, 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 and um, euthanise a lot of dogs because that's what they were going to do. But they didn't understand the relationship with the dogs, with people in that community. So that was, uh, uh, you know, you mightn't think, well, where does cultural competence fit in here? And, and we had these young veterinarians challenging the old guys about, you just can't walk in. Would you do that in downtown Sydney? Mm -hmm. walk into someone's yard and think, well, I think this dog needs to die. So it was actually, uh, I, I think, um, um, they, they started to address that in a really specific way. So I think this, this is what we want to do tonight, is just show how cultural competence can work in a whole lot of areas. Now, Russell, um, both your institute and, and, and um, Sydney University is committed to working together uh, in the public service, Australian public service. I know we need, I know, I, I know we agree on just about everything around this, but can you talk to me or the group why we actually need cultural competence in Canberra? I know we, we can talk all <laughs> night about cultural competence in Rockhampton, but let's, let's talk about Canberra. It's conspicuous by its absence. <laughs> Can I just say that, uh, uh, well, first of all, I mean, I thank Professor Good for demystifying the elements of cultural competence. And when I first, first started working and, and being interested in this, I, you know, we had some other words for it, but we've now been able to identify it as cultural competence. And in fact, in my organisation, we go a bit further, we talk about cultural proficiency. Mm -hmm. And we talk about toward cultural proficiency because, mm -hmm. you know, I think it's an ideal state to, to, uh, to achieve, but whether you eventually achieve it and, and sustain it is another matter. And, and I think Professor Good's already suggested that it's complex and it's a continuum. But look, uh, Mick, I'll be straight. I think that whilst Professor Good's discussion around cultural competence is a broad spectrum involving you know, multiple cultures. My focus has certainly been on the cultures uh, that involve Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander culture and Western culture and how it interacts with governments and their bureaucracy. And there's no question in my mind, and that sparked my interest in that personal, uh, personally, because when I first became involved in the public sector, my identity and my cultural knowledge counted for nothing. Mm -hmm. You know, the fact that I knew something about in Aboriginal culture, the fact that I was an Aboriginal person really didn't carry any weight with anybody. And it's questionable whether it still does. And I thought that's what really put me on the path of interest in this. But talking about, you know, the collective that we refer to as the Australian Public Service, there's no doubt in my mind that if you put a slide rule uh, against uh, Tawara's five elements, there would be issues and questions around every one of those elements. And the one I'm particularly interested in is the one where we talk about 
sustaining cultural competence and institutionalising cultural competence because that is absolutely foreign to the Australian Public Service. And, you know, if uh, you'll have to promise not to mention this outside this door, I'll probably have to have you... There's a cone of silence. I'll probably have you. Okay. Could you please lower the cone yep. of silence? But in all seriousness, uh, it's something that's caught my attention. It's something that's driving me and my organisation to try to make a contribution to the knowledge base that's needed to develop cultural competence. It's one of the reasons why we partner with Sydney University uh, and indirectly, of course, with Georgetown. We're in a uh, pretty exalted company there, but, but I'll claim that we're sort of, you know, uh, de facto partners with George, Georgetown because of uh, our relationship with Sydney University. And it's an area that cries out for a whole range of research that goes to the issues of identity, goes to the issues of Indigenous knowledges, Indigenous ways of knowing and being, and doing business. And so it's fertile ground. And if we left it to the Australian Public Service, none of these research questions would be answered. And uh, something that, you know, I, as a senior bureaucrat, Indigenous bureaucrat, there's not that many of us left now. Mick, something you, Aidan, and others, Richard in the room would know a lot about. Uh, you know, it's a shrinking field in terms of numbers. Um, but we, you know, I'm determined at least to try and make some contribution and get some runs on the board in trying to make the Australian public sector somewhere down that continuum of cultural competence. So I think it's terribly important for the nation. It's very important, of course, for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities in terms of their interactions and their relationships with government. So I guess that's what drives me, and I'm happy to, you know, in my own organisation, I. I've tried to be innovative and, and uh, can I just share with you that, you know, on my card, they're celebrating 50 years of ASIS and I can tell you that if you've assessed our cultural competence not so long ago, it wouldn't have come up too well. And I took a stand that we needed to do something about that. We made claims about our relationship with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and we simply weren't walking the talk. And so that brought me on to not just my own institutional settings, but also the broader Australian Public Service. But so in answer to your question, Mick, there's a lot of work to be done if the Australian Public Service is ever going to make the claim that it's culturally competent. And I could even say that in the context of Professor Good's uh, work, it's even difficult to claim that they are culturally pre-competent. I don't even think they've. I don't even think they've. You know, they've gone too far down that road at all, and it needs to be addressed. So, can I um, explore? And probably, um, can I acknowledge Aidan Ridgway, who's one of our great leaders in Australia as well? And Aidan, feel free to jump up. But that that issue that we used to have. Remember, in the public service, how we fought for it. Um, um, when I was an ATSIC, you know, at, we wanted every position an ATSIC to be to have these two criteria because we felt you needed them to work, whether you were the chief financial officer or, or a field officer up in Nullumpoy. The, the, the ability to communicate effectively with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people and a knowledge and understanding of our cultures. Um, and everyone thought that they were just met only Aboriginal people, Torres Strait Islander people could get it, but Aidan or Russell want to talk about why that is so important to have. 
Well, I think it's clear. I mean, I... Well, first of all, do you think it only applies to Aboriginal Torres Strait Islander people? No, no, it doesn't. I, no, no, not at all. I mean, part of my institutional experience, I'm talking about my own institution, IATIS, was that we made claims to being culturally competent, but when I sort of initiated some processes to test that, we didn't come up too well, including people who were senior researchers that made claims to their cultural competence, and quite frankly, you know, the only way I could say is they weren't walking the talk. They weren't demonstrating respect. They weren't demonstrating values that I consider to be important. Their behaviours weren't what we would consider to be appropriate for a culturally competent organisation. And uh, so we needed to do something about it, and at another time, another setting, I'll tell you all about how we did that, and we have not... It's still a works in progress, but I think we're in much better shape in terms of our cultural competence than we were before I took what I think to be innovative action. And, you know, I'm trying to export that to the wider public sector. Yeah, and, Did I and, answer your question, Yeah, yeah I, I think uh, to get past that point that you only got this job because you're a black fella. Look, one, one of the what are the skills we need? Like, that's a point I'm trying to get to. Feel free, um, uh, Tawara or, or, or Vanessa, to come in. Like, these are valuable skills if you're trying to provide a public service and you can't connect with the people who you are trying to provide that service to. How important do you think that is, Vanessa? Oh, I think it's terrible. I think, I mean, I'm in health sciences and, you know, you see service delivery to Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people by non-Indigenous people, and no disrespect, but unless you're actually culturally competent, you're not going to achieve closing the gap. You're not going to achieve reducing the suicide rates in children and young people. You're not going to achieve, you know, lowering the incarceration rates. You, all these things that need to be addressed. And unless you actually have that understanding, we're not going to make it there. And, and it's really important for service delivery. And if you have to, anything to add to our, please do. Um, and it's, it's just a very important process to go through. And for non-Indigenous people, it's, it's, you know, you start at home. You start at the country where you come from. Like, we're in Australia, so we need to be, at first, knowing and understanding Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people's knowledge, ways of, of doing things, um, ways of understanding. And then you can actually take that out and understand how to work with other cultures within Australia, because we are a multicultural society, and that's the reality. And it's, you know, if we are actually going to make that stance and have culturally competent health service providers, we actually have to have that full understanding. It's, it's really important. And it's not just about hiring somebody just because they're Indigenous, okay? It's about looking back and saying, okay, can you actually do the job? Are you qualified? Do you have an understanding? You know, it's, and quite often Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people do know their own culture. They do know their own people. They do understand how it works, okay? But on the other side of that, a lot of people are expertise in certain areas. So it's, beyond, it's looking beyond being just an Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander and understanding that, you know, we do have expertise. And then you take that again across the board and, and you look at um, government. And I work a lot with the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare and the Australian Bureau of Statistics. And quite often it's difficult to get them to understand that, you know what, we are actually expertise too. It's great. We understand and we know how to move forward. And being culturally competent 
even in data collection, is, is really important space to be in for health service delivery across all levels. Tawara, we were talking before we came here, we were talking about um, cultural competence in Australia. I reckon we started at Aboriginal and Torres Strait on the people, but now you've, you've been in it for 17 years, 19 years. Can you tell us a little bit about how cultural competence Russell, Vanessa and I are going to talk about the Indigenous perspective. What about other areas where cultural competence is absolutely important? I would say, I just want to look at this historically. So I would say when the cultural competence movement first began to evolve in, in the United States, that a lot of it was indeed racial and or ethnic specific. So that it's like, this is, I call it the four food group approach. This would you do with, you know, black people, this would you do with Asian Americans, this would you do with Latinos. It was, it was that kind of approach. And um, it was grouping lots of folks together under the umbrella of a particular racial or ethnic identity. So fortunately, things have evolved. And as we think about cultural competence now, it is about culture. It is not necessarily about racial and ethnic groups. While there may be racial and ethnic groups that have disparities, either in health or educational achievement, it is about addressing culture. And culture is, again, age and gender. Race and ethnicity as well is socioeconomic status, it's literacy. It's geographic locale. It's a whole range of things that make people who they are. And so as we think about the evolution of cultural competence, it's getting back to looking at what does culture mean within the context of education or public sector. This is not to ignore the fact that we have significant racial and ethnic disparities in the United States, and we do, and that there needs to be things that are ethnic and racial specific. So I, I think that, as, again, as we look at the evolution, it's about understanding the word culture and understand that competence is not being able to know everything there is to know about a particular culture. It is about demonstrating knowledge and skills in the face of culture so that I can teach or provide services or support individuals with disabilities and their families in an appropriate way. I want to share with you uh, um, if this all works out. I kind of coined a new term because in the United States we hear a lot about underserved communities, and there are. Some communities aren't underserved. Some communities are inappropriately served, and I want to share what that means, and I need my glasses. So inappropriately served is defined as the design, the delivery, and the evaluation of services and supports that fail to address the cultural and linguistic needs and preferences of a given population, group of people, or an individual and or his family. So it's not about being underserved. It's about how those services are provided that doesn't respect and understand the nature of culture. And again, we're all cultural beings and we have to be able to dress culture in everything that we do. Russell? 
Mick, very briefly, one of the reasons I'm pushing the issue and the concept of cultural competence is because in the Australian public sector context, if they engage in it, it encourages them to question the history, the nature and the limitations and shortcomings of their own cultural beliefs and settings. And if, of course, they do that and they do that willingly, that's going to bring about positive change. And I think that's one of the, you know, one of the important issues of the, uh, that's been highlighted in the research of Professor Good. I think it, it demands that assessment of your own worldview. Mm -hmm. And Absolutely. because up till now, the Australian Public Service have not shown a willingness to question their own worldview. Yeah. And it, it's got to it's happen. And I, uh, to take up Tawara's part, is I probably visit more Aboriginal communities than just about anyone in my travels. Um, I don't speak on behalf of anyone else except the Gungaloo people and from what people tell me, but there's not a community I'd go to without asking what are the protocols here, who should I talk to, you know, and so don't think we know it all because we live this, we have those lived experiences. I don't have a lived experience of Yulnu people in Arnhem Land or Mirum people up in Murray Island. So I think it's pretty important to understand we all have those issues like Tawara said, if you moved down to, where were you going to go to? And uh, this has been recorded. I want to retract the name of the state. Okay. Jaime, <laughs> <laughs> back your, your, your stuff. Like, I've got a quote here from Josefa campina Bacote, who said, my cultural background was the genesis of my professional life. First of all, do you identify with that statement? And can you share with us? I identify with that statement in part for some aspects of my life, but for other areas, I think that has been a matter of opportunities. I, I, am, I am originally from Colombia, from South America, and I have three different heritage. I am African, I am indigenous, and I am Spanish, possibly from Northern Africa, and because the, the Arabs went to, to Spain. And in Colombia, we celebrate this diversity that we have there. And I have been able to interact in these three uh, settings and this mixture of settings there. Then, and I, at, over there, I, was, I have the opportunity to work with high school students from different socioeconomic backgrounds. Then I come here as a PhD student, as an international student. I have to adapt myself to a new way of, of doing things. And I have to adapt to the Australian way. And then I moved to be an academic. And I was on the other side, having international students and trying to adapt and understand more about the cultural context, to be able to interact with the students. And in the last three years, I have the chance to lead the indigenous portfolio, so to understand more about the indigenous area in cultural competence. This has provided me with opportunities, opportunities to be able to achieve things and to do things beyond my area of research, that is genetics, with crocodiles, platypuses, nothing related to cultural competence at the moment. But one of the important things here is that we have had 
some people who has taken the leadership, who have taken the leadership in this university and in the DVC indigenous office. And they have trust some of us coming from overseas or locals in doing things here in relation to the cultural competence. And we start seeing changes in perceptions in our faculty. Mm -hmm. We start seeing our academics and, and students engaging in a continuous conversation about indigenous matters, about indigenous challenges. I have changed issues for challenges. Also, we have seen people acknowledging that indigenous people have known for thousands of years about animal conservation, animal knowledge, and we need to understand a little bit more about that. Also, people have, started, uh, have, have seen the relevance of cultural competence, not only for the indigenous context, but for international students. So what can I say here is that the opportunity that I have had has allowed me to contribute and give back to this society that has given me something. Great stuff. How's that? I'm going to, I'm going to ask to some, um, there's some time for you mob parts questions now. Now see there's a microphone over there. Any questions? Uh, thank you everyone. Thank you for this opportunity as well. I have a Can I get question. your name first? My name is Lynn. Um, I'm actually dealing with the cultural competence area uh, for all staff at the university and I'm dealing with two dilemmas. So I'm going to present those two dilemmas to you. One of them is some research about diversity programs and their effectiveness. That research, some of that was done by Yin Parodies. Uh, so what's a bit stunning about that is that we see that around about 20% of people doing those diversity programs come out more prejudiced. That's a worry. Uh, and then the other um, side of things is um, it strikes me that, you know, we've, we talk about the silence in Australia, to, you know, in relation to racism and things like that. Um, and so what we need to do is perhaps develop courage in people. So um, how do we encourage people to say something? You know, we talk about the bystander racism or the interventions. How do we encourage that? Because it seems like that's a little bit, I guess it's a behaviour and attitude, like, you pointed out, um, Tawara, but um, it seems like it also is something else. So here's the, the, here's the two dilemmas and I'm just wondering how, how you could respond. Thank you. First go. Uh, let's see, I'll, I'll start with uh, the comment and um, the research that you cited around diversity. So I want to be really clear that diversity is diversity. It's not cultural competence. And while they're related, they're not the same. And I think we have to be very clear on that so that just as you may have been able to see some literature um, that looks at um, diversity not being as effective, you can find other literature that will say it is. So it's like, um, being in an academic institution, you obviously need to take stock of both, um, but you need to know who's a researcher, or was the research approach, what could have been potential biases in the conduct of that research. So that's a statement. As it relates to having people to address, I'm going to say racism, 
and the other isms? I feel that that's part of cultural competence and that we have to equip people with skill sets so that it's uncomfortable. It's not the easiest thing to, to address, but if you're gonna be leading this work, you have to deal with it because it's real and it impacts the lives of too many people. So there are lots of tools for that. Many, many tools for combating racism, including having dialogues, having a forum in which people can talk about it because we don't have those conversations often in the United States. And they need to be highly structured and they need to be as safe as possible. Now you're not gonna protect everyone from those conversations, but one needs to know that they're at least safe and their opinions can be heard. So I think that there are a range of things to do, including encouraging people to step up and to be able to share things. I shared a story with um, faculty um, and staff earlier today about um, helping people to have the skills to address, I'm gonna say, biased, prejudice, or racist statements. And it's a skill that has to be taught so that if someone says something totally inappropriate in your presence and it makes you uncomfortable and you say nothing, there's a lesson learned. The person who said it thinks it's okay to behave that way. They also may even inadvertently think that you concur. So how do we teach students and faculty, quite frankly, and community members to be able to have dialogues and to be able to step up and say something when one is uncomfortable? It doesn't have to be confrontational, but it has to be said. I, I, I talk about that when I talk uh, this morning, Russell was at a meeting with us and we talked about the effect of racism and the stress it produces. And I think, Tawara, that's... Um, I, I, uh, we, we, when, we, when we're in a race a situation where there's been those statements made, we've got a nanosecond to make a decision whether it's going to cause us more stress to say something or more stress if we don't say something. Mm -hmm. And I've been in those situations, waking up at night thinking, I'm going to jump in the car and find that bloke. <laughs> um, and and they're, they're those instant things, you've, and, and, and they are acquired skills to be able to deal with it and um, not drag someone across a table, you know. Um, but, but you mentioned safe spaces. It's particularly important to have safe spaces to have these conversations. And I, I think that's one of the great things we did um, with the CRC. We created safe spaces for conversation and we had one rule. And that was everyone had to leave a round table, a meeting, a conference with their dignity intact. And that made a, a really active role. It wasn't, wasn't just inert, you couldn't sit there and think it's going to happen. You had to actually pull yourself up sometimes when you were going to take, uh, make a statement. Vanessa, do you want to comment, or Russ, or Jaime? I mean, I'm just going to similar line uh, response to, to Warren. You know, we have to work hard to, to, to give people cultural safety to, to express their views and share experiences and contest ideas. And... Um, Sometimes, you know, the, the, the sort of one of the one of the benefits I think of cultural competence is that you learn more and more about the other person's 
space and the other person's identity. And over time, that debunks myths that you might believe to be true, that gives rise to ill will. And so, you know, I think if we do create those conversations, uh, and you know, someone said today, I think it was the Vice Chancellor where we were today, that, you know, what can universities do to, uh, you know, to help uh, this understanding? Well, keep doing what you're doing, teach, and, you know, and graduate people that have better understandings. And if every university had uh, adopted the Indigenous graduate attribute in every faculty, that would make a contribution to less racism in, this, in society over time. That would be unprecedented internationally, in, you know, if we were able to do it in this country. But look, the language, you know, of, of racism and, uh, you know, it's, it's used by governments in our interest. They talk about Indigenous advancement, a term we used 40, 50 years ago. And it's meant to say, well, you know, one day you'll be as good as the rest of us. And it's a deficit language, and, you know, you can use other words. And it's got to stop. Yep. And, you know, our kids are responding to that. And as you say, not only is it hurtful, it makes them ill. And we've got to stop it. I might, I might get another question. Hi, my name's Scott. Um, I work at an organisation over at Central involved in health um, promotion. I really liked what you said, Tawara, about uh, self-reflection and thinking about your own culture because I think it sounds really silly. I'm a Canadian guy living in Australia and uh, I don't think I really did that like I probably thought I should have until recently. And I really think, you know, you sort of think your culture, the things that you do are just that are normal and everyone else should be kind of doing what you're doing. It's almost, it's arrogant really to think that way, I know, and, and then sort of, it's good to question it. Anyway, my question is about, our organization has started a reconciliation action plan. And I've just sort of, by, by some strange reason, fallen into the role of promoting this in the organization with a, with a few other people. So I'm on the advisory group for that. And I've worked in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander programs before, so I know a little bit about it, but I would never claim to know as much as I, I could. Um, there, do you guys have any examples of, of um, things that could work in an organization to get people's buy-in? Because I think buy-in within the organization is number one before we go to try to do, you know, to expand outward. Um, so I've already started by having an internal survey going on and I had it mentioned today by the CEO, which was really good, and she did her first acknowledgement of country as well, which was is, which is really great. So that's getting something going and getting some ideas of what this, the staff internally, it's about 200 people, where they're at, and what, what, what they know, and what, they're, what I guess where, where their competence is sort of at at the moment. But if you guys have any ideas of what sort of activities or what sort of things might generate a buzz without you know, them being perceived as being hassled, I think as someone said, or being bothered too much. Um, I, can, I can answer that. Um, as the first vice president of the National Public Health Association of Australia, looking at Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health, um, they had the position open for two years. And um, then I was encouraged by some senior Aboriginal people to apply for it with their support. And going into this organisation, there was all non-Indigenous people. And every time I addressed um, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander issues, they would, uh, it would be put at the end of the agenda or they would forget to add me in. So 
and I consistently pushed forward. And I pushed so far forward that now I'm second on the agenda, straight after the vice president, <laughs> after the president. And what's happened now, as the more that I have um, demonstrated the issues of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander, what's going on in Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander health, and how to address them, and how we could advocate for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people's health, it's actually opened a lot of doors. People have stepped up and said to me, can I now do this? Can I do this? And I said, well, it, it, that would be great because there's only one of me. So people are actually standing up and saying, I want to do the buy-in. I feel safe enough to do the buy-in. And I feel like my voice is going to be heard. And it's, it was about having that on the agenda for nearly two years before I could actually get, get the buy-in. And so it was really, on my part, it was diligence and patience. And persistence. And I've, seen, I've seen that up there. Yeah. <laughs> persistence. Yeah. I, have, yeah. I have a question. Um, is it buy-in for a reconciliation process or is it buy-in for cultural competence? I wasn't clear. Okay, so um, I'd love to talk a few afterwards and keep this as brief as possible, um, but there are many different strategies for buy-in. And I think what's important is, uh, is to first try and identify um, what the barriers are, why people are acting the way they're acting, and to see what the nature of resistance is. So they can start to structure some of the buy-in in that way. So for instance, what, what's the role of social networks in buy-in? Like, you know, I know Vanessa, and Vanessa hangs out with this person, so I'm gonna start a little buzz with Vanessa so Vanessa can tell someone else. I also think that you need to establish a rationale for why cultural compass is important for the organization. That's really key and critical. There are a number of people that, um, I'm gonna say didn't buy-in for the reasons I would want them to, but they bought in because it limited liability. I'm just saying that it gave them a better posture in terms of grant applications. I mean, there, people are motivated for a lot of different reasons. I don't really care what starts folks on a journey as long as they're on the journey in an authentic way. So I think that um, there are multiple strategies for getting buy-in. And we can talk about those in in greater detail, but I do not think it's just one particular approach for buy-in. And I have one other thing to say. When I was younger and more naive, I thought everybody wanted to take the journey. Okay, so look, I'm old now. <laughs> I'm not as naive. And there's some people who don't want to take the journey. So no matter what you do in the way of buy-in, they're not buying in. The last question. 
Hi, um, my name is William. I'm a volunteer for MDA, which is Multicultural Disability Advocacy Association. I'm also a board member there as well. One of the main things that um, I find is quite uh, problematic is that there's a lot of um, people out there that are unaware, or they know that they have rights, but unaware of what their rights are specifically. So what do you think that we should do at the systemic level in order to um, address that issue that people that falls between the gaps? Cracks. You know, I, I'm gonna put someone on a spot that happens to be here who's had a long history of disability rights advocacy. She happens to be in this room. And I'm gonna put her on the spot to say something for Bell. <laughs> Come over here. <laughs> Thanks for that. Was it Michael? William. 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 Hi, William. I'm Barbell. I used to work at. I'm Barbell, yes. Of course. So um, I've been interested in listening to what people have to say, and I come, I work in disability and diversity. And Tawara and I did some work together about 10 years ago when we first came out. So Tawara came out to a conference and it was in the disability diversity space that she spoke around cultural competence. And um, I'm, I'm, I'm really excited about this conversation happening in the Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander communities because somebody talked about we've got to get it, I think you said, we've got to get it right. For, for on people first and I always thought I worked in New Zealand for a while and they talk about the cultural, the bicultural journey being the leading journey into multiculturalism yeah. and then into other areas mm. like disability. Yeah. Um, and in that context I think it's really important to think about the power of the people and in disability, this is national disability insurance, the conversation about more choice and control and assisting people to really think through what it is that makes my life a good quality life, including my cultural and linguistic needs, and having a receptive public servant to listen to me and understand that is part of my identity, and my identity isn't just shaped by my disability mm -hmm. or by my ethnic origin or by my race or by my gender or whatever that there is much more to people. Mm -hmm. And for people to have the skills to articulate that as a, I have the right to. For me to be a fully human being, I have a right to, is really important. And that's the work that Emda is doing and lots of other people. Thank you. Thank you, Thank you. Uh, I, I would like to mention uh, some part of the curriculum review that we are doing in the Vet Science Faculty because it's related uh, with cultural competence, not only in the indigenous area, but how to communicate effectively with people with disabilities. Because mm -hmm. sometimes could be a situation where the professional decline, we have the interpreter and we have the animal in, in a room. And sometimes it's possible that the professional address to the uh, interpreter instead of addressing to the client. These kind of small things we want to change under the umbrella of the indigenous cultural competence that we are implementing in, in the vet science faculty. Thank you. Can you thank our panel? <laughs> Tawara, welcome to our country. 
Thank you. And you're going to teach us lots. And I'm going to learn a lot. And you're going to learn lots. Vanessa, I can't wait for about two months, I think, the marking takes. And you're going to give me a call and say, <laughs> I now got to call you doctor. I love, I love, you know, you talk about cultural change. I was lucky enough to be in the public service when we brought in the, in the early 80s all this administrative law stuff around EEO, um, um, freedom of information, you're allowed to challenge bureaucrats, change the whole culture of the public service. And, and, and But see, the state governments were really unreconstructed. It was the federal government leading the way. And I remember I moved to Brisbane and I went and saw this old guy and he said to this, one of my colleagues, now love, what do we call you? Mrs, Miss or Ms? And she said, doctor will do. <laughs> so you're gonna have the privilege of doing that. Jaime, thanks for your involvement. Um, I think the work you do in, in that vet area tells mm -hmm. us that it's possible to do cultural competence anywhere. Exactly. So thanks for your contribution tonight. Russell, the warrior, keep on fighting. Um, we'll get to the point. I don't think we'll ever get to the point. I, I say to Russell today, people like Aidan, I, Russell, lived in the golden age for Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people in the public service. I think that's gone. And somehow we've got to capture that when, when we were actually valued. So Russell, thank you for that contribution, but the, for the fight that you fight. Now, I just want to tell two quick stories about cultural competence. And we looked at the AFL when I was in the CRC. It was time when Yin was, had just, just submitted his, his thesis around racism. And we looked at what the AFL did. And while we had a, our heroes like um, Michael Long and Nicky Winmar fighting from the grassroots up and not taking no for an answer, it wasn't until the leadership like Mick Malthouse and Kevin Sheedy came on board and changed the whole culture of it, you know, they were fighting up against it. And you can track almost in AFL and rugby league, it's, it's one of the over-representations we can be proud of. We are totally, Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander plays are totally over-represented about, it, it hovers around 15, 16% of the players are Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander. And, and I, I would argue in AFL particularly, we've changed the nature of the game. It's played differently today. But you can track that involvement from the time they took that stand on racism and they created a culturally safe place for those footballers. Now, we've witnessed in the last 12 months Adam Good still being subject to racism, but the difference is this. It's not Adam Good's having to talk about it, it's actually other spectators ringing the police and saying, and the security guards at those football games and I often wonder, and I, I reckon this is a thesis worth, worth, worth looking at, is if ever we remove racism from the education system, would our kids thrive similarly to what our footballers have done? And I think that's a question we really need to look at because what they've done in the AFL and now in rugby league, not so much, I would argue, that they've created a culturally safe place. And now we're seeing all sorts of people you know, our first Muslim player, our first African player now feeling safe enough to come and play. The last story I want to tell you, Russell heard this this morning. You'll remember when the intervention happened 
And I get asked the difference between cultural competence and cultural security. And when the intervention happened, remember we had those government business managers go in and take over communities. They were the old mission managers my mum would have referred to. And to know the nature of these communities, they, they, they live in these compounds and the white people live in the middle of the compound and with six foot fences with barbed wire on it and the countrymen live outside. And this guy turned up and would, just wouldn't come out. And he was literally scared. He'd never been, probably never seen an Aboriginal person before. Well, he'd probably seen lots of Aboriginal people who didn't realise they were Aboriginal. Um, but never been to a remote community. And I was talking to him, these people about him and, and they told me they gave him a name in their language that equates to an egg. And I said, why do you call him that? And they said, because we know something's alive in there, but we don't quite know what it is. <laughs> now, the difference is that person was totally culturally incompetent. The system that put him out there was totally culturally insecure. Why would you put a man who had no hope of ever coping into a place like that? And I think there was a disservice done to him, but the bigger disservice was done to that community. Can I thank you for tonight? Thanks for listening. <laughs> Become culturally competent. Thank you, Mick. Um, I'm absolutely proud to be part of an organisation that is partnering with others that we can learn from, that is leading and is being a leader in cultural competence in this, not only in this country, but in this world, that is allowing us to have the conversations and making that happen. Tonight we discussed the understanding of culture and applying that understanding to ensure that we embed the, that understanding in the fabric of our organisation. And in previous jobs that I've worked in, I used to say, we have to integrate, embed, infiltrate the way we walk, talk, eat and breathe as an organisation. I really would like to thank all of you for participating tonight. Um, Professor Good, thank you, and we have got an ongoing relationship with you and we're very proud that that's going to continue and that we'll learn from you and you'll learn from us. Vanessa is very proud that we have got one of our own academics leading and being a leader, an innovative leader in our own organisation and university. Hi, me. <laughs> thank you so very much for having the basic understanding and respect of our mob and making it happen in, in our own backyard. We're very proud that you're a part of our organisation. Russell, I hope you don't mind me calling you by your first name. Very proud that you're also one of our partners. And I have also come out of the public service and it's a long journey trying to make changes in such a big organisation. And I think it's the reason that motivates us is that we are trying to make the lives of our people better. And we hope that the work in this university makes the lives of all people better, all cultures. That's what we're trying to actually do here. Finally, I'd like to, um, or not finally, but I'd like to thank you, Mick, and I know my introduction wasn't as good as gives you the accolades you deserve, but um, you come with over 25 years of experience and we really thank you for sharing those stories throughout the night um, in a very clever way. Lastly, I would like to thank the National Centre for Cultural Competence in the University of Sydney team, Leanne, Sarah and Sarah-Jane. Your efforts are unbelievable, made this happen tonight. And we really want to thank you because it's very important that those people get acknowledged in terms of getting us up here and allowing this to happen. Thank you very much for coming tonight.